everyone. This is episode 133 of the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Ashlyn Lee, and I am the communications coordinator for High Point. In this episode of the Cutting Room Floor series, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, who is on staff, are going to take a deep dive into the five graces or offices that Nick first talked about in his sermon from August 4th. If you haven't listened to it already, you can find it at highpointchurch.org sermons. They will also be answering a listener question, which was sent to us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Feel free to send us an email as well, right after you finish listening to this episode. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to another Cutting Room Floor episode of the Engage Equip podcast. Uh, our Cutting Room Floor episodes are when we have either more content that we want to go more in depth on, or if we ran out of time, or one of those, or multiple of those, or for whatever reason, we want to talk more. There are th- <laughs> It doesn't take much for us to want to talk more sometimes. So um, today, we, uh, we're going to talk about... I, so let me frame it this yeah, way, Nicole. Sometimes <laughs> we're trying to move through passages fat, at a fast enough pace on Sunday morning so people don't feel like we're getting bogged down in a book like Ephesians for three years. Yes. And yet you go through and buy so much. And some things are only taught in one place in the Bible. This is the only place that talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So if we just pass this by in the three to five minutes I spent is all there is, and we never come back to Ephesians We'll never talk about it. And that's just that's just bad pastoring, I think. Mm-hmm. So this allows me to say, no, we need to talk about this teaching more because people need to understand this because it's about who we are as a church and how we work and who are these supporting people that help us grow. Also, that is true. That wasn't <laughs> just him covering for me, making a joke that we like to talk. That is actu- actually true. So we're going to talk about those five uh, those five graces, those five offices, there are a couple ways that you've referred to them, um, but we're going to talk about those. So why don't we jump right in? Yes. Where would you like to start? Um, why don't we start by reading the passage? That's great. Sound good? Yes. So this is in Ephesians chapter four, and it's at verse 11. So it talks about Jesus ascending on high as king and winning these gifts that he gives to the people that he releases from captivity. And then it's, he says, it says it was he or Jesus the Christ who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers to prepare God's work people for works of service so that the body of Christ could be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attending to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so there has been a good bit of debate and even fighting and church splits and anger and hurt over what are these five graces, these gifts, these offices? What do they do? How do they function? And what does that mean? And I want to try to teach on that so that there isn't as much fighting and problem. So um, we did a a whole episode, another cutting room floor episode where we went more in depth in the whole of that whole passage that he just read from. And you can listen to that. Um, it'll, these two will probably be released closely together, if not, um, on the same day. Um, 
But today we're just going to talk specifically about those five graces. So why don't we start first with the apostles? I'm going to read the definition that you gave on Sunday from for apostles, and then you can talk a little bit more about it. Sounds great. So what you wrote was that an apostle is a sent one, usually someone that breaks new ground or starts something new. Sometimes this is applied to someone that leads a movement. Mostly um, it's applied to the apostles, but there are a few more references in other places to apostles. Yeah. So in the in this New Testament, the ap- apostle is a is a concept that is almost exclusively in the New Testament. Obviously there are Old Testament corollaries, but it's mostly a New Testament thing. And it's mainly because the concept of disciple is also a New Testament thing. And a disciple and apostle are two corollaries. A disciple is a follower. An apostle is somebody who's sent, right? Mm-hmm. On one level, that's all the word apostle means. In outside of the Bible, the word apostle is used, and it often means something like messenger, right? If Julius Caesar sent someone somewhere to tell people something, that person would be an apostolos, an apostle. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. They're a messenger, a sent one. Okay. I found that clarification between disciple and apostle very helpful because yeah. I had often heard apostles applied to the 12 disciples, right. but there are also more than just 12. And so I, right. that was always, so that the, was really the helpful. The 12 are and were disciples of Jesus. They were his followers. In addition to that, they were also apostolos or apostles right. because these are the 12. He So when it says he went to his disciples and he chose 12 and designated them apostles. Right. He went to his followers and chose 12 that he could send. Yeah. Right? Makes perfect sense once you know what the words mean. When, so in parts of Jesus's ministry where he sent out more, like when he sent the 72 out, could they have been referred to then as apostles too? I mean, in terms of the meaning of the Greek word, they were apostles. He sent, they were people he sent. But that designation, the apostles, in most contexts is referring to these 12 that he chose. Um, But the apostle Paul, for example, was not one of them. Right. And it was universally accepted in the in the early part of the church that he was an apostle on par with the apostles, mm-hmm. right? And then there were others that you might call lesser apostles in that none of their writings have come down to us and they haven't written part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. People like Silas or Junius right? Um, and some of these other people that are that he refers to as apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have said, ah, right, that's... Right. You know, that that means anybody can be an apostle. And in a way, it does mean that. Anybody can be an apostle. And on Sunday morning, I said, like, a missionary is probably the closest thing. Yeah. Somebody goes and starts a new thing is an apostle. Um, I think you also mentioned maybe church planting as that type of work as well. Yeah, I think anybody who starts a new thing in a new place would be an apostle. There's somebody who's sent somewhere to do something. Right. Right. Anybody we send out, we are designating them an apostle by the fact that we are sending them. Right. Plus also remember, I, I noted that there's a couple places where Paul is arguing with a church and he's saying, um, these other apostles, right? These mm-hmm. other people, you, he, there's an assumption in Paul's arguments that there are more apostles than the 12. Right. And there are, and it's possible to make a mistake as, as to who should be designated an apostle. Because he's saying, you know, you're treating these people like apostles and not me like an apostle. You've made a mistake. Right. He's not saying, look, none of us are apostles. Only the 12 are the apostles. Mm-hmm. So when you start taking into account even the, and then Paul says his seal of being an apostle is the Corinthian church. The right. fact that he was sent out, 
he planted that church, the fact that there is a church means that God was with him in his being sent Mm -hmm. and blessed his work of being sent and made him capable of starting a new thing as a sent one. He's like, the fact that you exist proves that God thinks I'm an apostle. Right. So when you start looking holistically at all of the arguments and sub-arguments in the New Testament, it's very obvious that more than the 12 are designated apostles. Right. Right. And also in the context of Ephesians, it's extremely unlikely that apostle there means just the 12. Yeah. He's talking about these five different offices that are populated apparently in a geographically diverse way. And these are gifts that God has given his whole church. Mm-hmm. It's very unlikely that the apostle there simply is referring to the apostles. Right. Unless you've already got a theological ax to grind. All right, let's uh, move to the next one, which is prophet. I'll read what you wrote for the definition for this. So a prophet is someone that speaks God's truth intuitionally and shares God's message in the present through the spirit's leadership. And you also um, noted that this comes from the intuitional mind rather than the deliberative mind like teaching. So I think it'd be helpful for you to talk a little bit about that. Um, And then also, I think it'd be helpful to hear you talk about ways that we might see that examples of what that might look like even in our own lives, ways we can recognize it. Yeah, some people have had very profound feelings on different kinds of levels and that come to them in different ways of like, I should tell so-and-so such-and-such. It's true and they need to hear it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in some cases, that gift is combined with other gifts mentioned in the Bible, like the discerning of spirits or what's sometimes called the word of knowledge, where you actually know something you couldn't have otherwise known and you share that and you share this message of truth and it's more impactful or more helpful because you know those things, right? Um, so it's fairly common for people to only recognize a gift of prophecy when the gift of prophecy is accompanied by other gifts, like discerning of spirits, word of knowledge, right. that kind of stuff. But prophecy in and of itself is simply the the response to the intuitional urge of God, which of course that has to be discerned subjectively, right? To speak the truth for mm-hmm. the good of others. Mm-hmm. Right. And so anybody who is gifted in that way. And so a prophet in this context would be somebody who does that gift on an office like level. Sure. Their gift is consistent enough. It's affirmed enough. So the prophecy in the Bible is done at the judgment of the elders. Mm-hmm. The elders judge whether or not this is a real prophecy. So a prophet would be somebody who like he's he goes from church to church and elders keep go saying, oh, no, yep, that you're dead on. That's dead on. Yes, 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 yes. And like elder after elder after elder at church right. after church after church is like, nope, that's right. Yep. That's what God is. That is, is very consistent with what God would be saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, those people tend to rise to the level of an office holder. Mm-hmm. They're recognized that they do this gift. And that person is a prophet. The gift of prophecy, however, is diffuse to the church. Many people have the gift. In churches like ours, it's just often not referred to as prophetic stuff. Sure. It's just, you you might feel like you really need to tell me something. And you mm-hmm. might say, Nick, this is a really strong burden on my heart for you. I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like I need to tell you this, mm-hmm. right? And another church, somebody might be like, I have a word for you. Right. But it's, and the, it's coming in that intuitional right. mind. What you might be communicated could be the same. It exact could be same thing. Born of the same intuition, right. like you said. Right. We just might refer to it differently. Right. Yeah. 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 And as you grow in Christ, like we said in the last podcast, the voice of God and the sanctified conscience begin to sound very similar. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's very difficult to tell where 
um, godliness ends and supernatural prophetic ministry begins. Right. The two can get very overlaid with each other. But that's good. That's a good thing, not a bad mm-hmm. thing, right? So, but the church, God believes that the church benefits when some group of people he has gifted is telling those truths to people. Right. I've had experiences with, um, sometimes it's been friends. Sometimes One time that I'm thinking of in particular, it was a stranger I did not know at a coffee shop that we had struck up a conversation and then this girl um, wanted to share something and she said, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is going to mean anything to you, but I just, I want to share it. Um, and frequently I've had it accompanied with that, uh, that caveat at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Maybe this won't mean anything to yeah. you. Maybe it will. And sometimes it has. When that girl shared something, it was very, um, I think it was maybe a passage I had just been reading or it was some something yeah. that I had just been reflecting on. It was coincidental on. enough yeah. that you were you felt drawn to say, oh, this is God. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it was also the same day that I started realizing I was having a miscarriage. So it was all these really significant things that were happening oh, okay. all at once. Um, there have been other times where someone has said that to me and it really hasn't meant anything to me. Right. And I just thought, well, it's still true. It's still God's word. It doesn't st- strike oh, yeah. me in any particular way. Yeah. And sometimes like I have had people tell me, watch out for this. Yes, I've had that as well. And you don't know because right. those can hopefully are self-defeating prophecies. Mm-hmm. So when they say, hey, you need to watch out for this and you go, okay, and you watch <laughs> out for it and then nothing happens. Yeah. Sometimes it's not because I th- I believe it's not necessarily because nothing happened, right. but it's because you obeyed and watched out for it and mm-hmm. the thing didn't happen. Right. And I've, I've had that in my life where I have heeded the warning and not heeded the warning. Mm-hmm. And, but, but where they said, they shared a thing, they said, I think you should, I think you should watch out for this. And I just was like, that doesn't make any sense to me until like two weeks later. And the, the moment clicked and I, like, shoot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's well, been helpful for me when, and so there have been a couple of times where I have felt like I've, should share something. And I've tried to start it with that phrase. Yeah. Now, one of the things that that comes up a little bit, this may be too advanced for this discussion, but it might be worth talking about for some of you who are listening is whether or not prophecy is an inherently or powerfully supernatural ministry or not. Hmm. Because, okay. So if you think about the difference between the intuitional mind and the deliberative mind, right? Mm -hmm. People tend to think of the gift of teaching as just a psychological gift, like your like intelligence, Right. So I, people recognize usually that I have the gift of teaching and they're like, yeah, Nick has this gift of teaching. It's so great. Right. But they don't think of it as like this inherently supernatural thing. They're like, Nick's smart. He went to school. He knows how to write talks. He's good at it. So he's gifted. Right. And then they turn to prophecy and they're like, well, prophecy is like it falls out of the sky and there's invisible angel wings over your head. Like, right. Well, it also might be that the same kind of intellectual gifting I have in my deliberative mind to write talks, other people have in their intuitional mind, in their capacity to perceive what's there, Mm -hmm. in their humanness that's being empowered by the spirit. Right. But like, it's amazing what human beings who are intuitionally attuned can know. It feels prophetic. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I've had situations where just like in counseling, I'll be like, I've attend, I've been in those situations. Yeah. yeah. Where I'm like, is this true? And they're like, oh my gosh, how can you know that? Yeah. And I'm like, well, and I do not, I don't think I have the gift of prophecy, but I do have a fairly developed intuitional sense. Yeah. And so sometimes I think that the gift of prophecy is a religious language set 
for God empowering the intuition of people in the office of telling the truth mm-hmm. as opposed to teaching being the spirit supernatural empowerment of the deliberative mind mm-hmm. that we call teaching. Mm-hmm. And that in that sense, I, so the, so why think of it that way? Well, because prophecy would then feel very natural. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and even the, th- like some of the very charismatic people, like the third wave, like Bethel movement people, that's the way they talk about prophecy. Sure. They don't go like, oh yeah, you'll hear this, thus says the Lord and blah, blah, right. blah. You'll just, you'll, there'll be a picture in your mind or you'll feel an intuitional thing is true. And then you just share it with some humility and see what happens. Right. Well, that's exactly what would be the case if it was a internal capacity of gifting that God then empowers right. by a spirit. And so I, I think sometimes that may be a helpful way to think about it. And it also may be a natural way to think about it. And it also may be a way to then say, therefore do it with humility. Mm-hmm. You should then give prophecies with the same humility you would give teachings. Sure. Right. Well, and I think too, one of the things that that strikes me with is that when we, when we think about some of the gifts that are listed as spiritual gifts in scripture, mm-hmm. we think then, oh, if I don't have that particular spiritual gift, then I shouldn't, or I don't have to do it. Like right. the spiritual gift of evangelism, right. being able to see a lot of people come to Christ. Just because someone doesn't have the spiritual gifting of evangelism doesn't mean they should not engage in right. evangelism. Yeah, all of these gifts, all right. of these gifts, like on some small, like everybody's sent in some way. Mm-hmm. Everybody is is has the responsibility to tell the truth somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Everybody should share the gospel. Everybody should shepherd others or help them go in the right direction. And everybody should share truths as they understand them. Right. Mm-hmm. And on and on and on. Right. Right. Let's, so absolutely. Yeah. Let's go to um, teacher. Cause we did talk a little bit about that in differentiating between okay. a prophet and a teacher. So what you have here is someone that instructs God's people in the truth. Yes. Through the deliberative process, usually, rather than intuitional. Right. Though a lot of people use their intuitional mind a lot in teaching. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. Sure. Um, usually for like illustrations or jokes. Mm-hmm. Almost none of my jokes or illustrations are written beforehand, which is not what preaching professors instruct. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I tend to be able to come up with reasonable illustrations in real time. And I jokes I write beforehand aren't funny. Right. So I find some kind of merging of the two to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, I, teaching is when you like, you help people know the things they need to know. Right. And you do it enough that people look to you for it. I think that a way to think about this for when you might've been sitting under someone who was a, a gifted teacher is thinking about, was there an instance where they explained something to you that like just had never clicked before, but then yeah. clicked in a very clear, obvious way. Yeah. And I think that's something that people consistently say here at High Point, which is probably one of the affirmations of thinking, yeah, Nick, you have the gift of teaching. Kind of like Paul was saying with his seal of being an apostle was the fruit of that church. That's one of the ways that we can know when someone has the gift of teaching. Yeah. Yeah, they tend to make things clear or give you ways to think about it that are very helpful right. or they'll connect things that weren't connected in your mind already. They just make your understandings richer, mm-hmm. you know, which is a little bit different than preaching in which you're trying to exhort the passions and move the will of someone. Mm-hmm. And so you'll often use teaching in um, in preaching, just like you'll use information when you're trying to persuade someone. Yeah. 
But like, like when my, my kids do speech and the persuasive speech and informative speeches are different speeches. Sure. Mm-hmm. But the informative speeches have a lot of, inf- or the, the persuasive. persuasive speeches have a lot of information in them. But at some point they're supposed to say, so therefore you should believe this and right. do this and feel this and go this way. Right. Which is why hopefully in our sermons, it's not just here's this information, right. but here is also application and how this should affect your life. And what we should believe together and how we should feel right. about this right here. Right. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about a pastor? Uh, you have written a shepherd of people spiritually. Yeah. And I don't like to make it too much more complicated than that. Yeah. So a, sh- a pastor on the level of these five graces is somebody who specializes in pastoring and helping people pastor other people. They are a, a consummate shepherd, a shepherd of shepherds and a trainer of shepherds. Right. I think because I, I believe that all of the offices here, I said this in the sermon, yeah. are itinerant offices. Mm-hmm. These are not people who stay in one locale, but who go around and do these things mm-hmm. in various churches that are governed and pastored by elders. Mm-hmm. So a church would have elders and then periodically an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a teacher, a pastor would come along and do some training in the thing they're trained for. So what, do you, what would the training look like from a pastor? What might it look like? I think he would train each part of the body to use its gift to better shepherd or spiritually care for other people. Okay. Help them grow and mature, help them persevere in the faith, help them deal with their difficulties, learn how to carry each other's burdens, Mm -hmm. learn how to give faithful witness and advice, Mm -hmm. learn how to rebuke and engage in discipline when necessary. A lot of the, yeah, it sounds like a lot of the interpersonal types of ministry that are happening in a church. Yeah. When people people, really are rubbing up against other people, knowing how to do that well for the benefit of the whole flock. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's kind of like if you went to medical school, you'd have all these professors who are PhDs and you had a couple of professors that were MDs and actually practiced medicine. Right. Like in the training of the church, you want some practitioners Right at seminaries, you know, you have your like PhDs in church history and Greek and Hebrew, but then there's the practical theology department yeah. <laughs> and some of them have PhDs, but most of them are MDivs that have gotten doctorates in divinity yeah. because they pastored for 30 years, mm-hmm. right? If I ever teach at a seminary, that's what I'll be, right? Sure. I'll be like, okay, but here's, so that's great. You learned that in the new Testament department. Now, now, what do you do when you're talking to a, a plumber right. who's having trouble with his 14-year-old daughter? Exactly. Right? You, you gotta, you, that's part of the education. Right. That was a fifth of my education as a pastor yeah. was divinity or practical theology. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that is a field. Taking yeah. the theory and connecting it with real life is itself an education. Mm-hmm. And that's what a pastor does. Yeah. Now there is some controversy about whether there's five or four categories, whether there's a pastor teacher category, that's one thing or they're separate. It's not really worth fighting about too much because it doesn't matter for the point of the text. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm completely disinterested in that controversy because the only reason that controversy matters is if you're counting up how many gifts somebody has, Sure. which I just think is folly. Yeah. So the last one then is an evangelist, someone that specializes in apologetics and proclamation of the gospel in order to lead new people to Christ. Yes. And you had listed a couple examples, John Lennox, Adam Mabry. Ravi Zacharias would be a good example of Mm -hmm. that. Um, These are people who, A, will come into a place and help do evangelistic events. Sure. So they'll do evangelism, mm-hmm. but then they're also training for evangelism. Yeah. So when they come and speak, the church listens to them do it. Yeah. They're like, oh, that's very helpful how they do that. Yeah. They might do trainings, 
specifically, stuff like that. So when Mike Beresford was with Billy Graham Association, they would have the crusade, but then they would go to all these churches and rally them together and try to unify their staff. They would work with all these counselors who were going to disciple people afterwards. They provided Mm. materials for them to use and all of that stuff. And so they trained in evangelism and then did evangelism. Um, But there are moments where your church will do something with an evangelist that sometimes you, you can lead as many people to Christ in like that event as in 10 or 12 years. And that's right. okay. Mm-hmm. You still need to be doing the work. But like, I remember when Alexi became a Christian, this is a point of annoyance for me. <laughs> I had met her, her first day on campus and I had been witnessing to her for about a month. Yeah. Right. Just very consistently every single day. Yes. Yes. I had a crush on her. <laughs> yes. This it was not a good, total situation but i was doing the work of like telling her about jesus right yes and then our, my church had this guy come and speak on sunday morning speak to the youth group and he was like an ex-drug addict and he was a really intense guy with tattoos on his neck and he was very charismatic and yeah and very compelling right and he preached on church on sunday some of our college students went to the youth event because we were helping out with the youth group yeah we invited alexi to come and she went up to his altar call <laughs> and accepted uh-huh. jesus i was so mad uh-huh because I didn't, quote, lead Alexi to Jesus. Right. Now, of course, she never mentions him when she gives her testimony, ever. Sure. She never, oh, Kurt such and such preached it so and so. And I, right. I, she said, Nick told me about Jesus. Right. And then he discipled me. Yeah. But, Scott, my husband has a similar testimony where yeah. two guys led his Bible study for a whole semester. Right. And then at a winter conference, he became yeah. a Christian. But I don't think he knows who was preaching then. Like he doesn't talk right. about them. Right. He talks about Sean and Sean. Right. And so, and like that guy that sealed the deal is the evangelist. Right. Right. And uh, Luis Palau used to say about Robert Schuler, who was a pastor in, like in the seventies, he had this huge like seeker church and all these people came it was the crystal cathedral, right? Thousands of people. And Palau would be like, yeah, Robert doesn't really lead people all the way to Jesus. <laughs> like he tells him he like primes the pump. He does, He's like, and then I just go do an altar call and like a thousand people get saved. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's like, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but evangelists are like that. Like yeah. they realize you have to invite people to make a decision. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people leave that last step of evangelism yeah. undone. Right. And so evangelism, evangelists essentially do two things. They invite people to believe, take that step of belief, and they keep telling us Look, you have to actually yes. invite people to believe right. or they don't. Right. You think it's assumed. Right. You lead them the water. They're at the water. They're thirsty. They assume, you just assume they'll drink. Right. And it, it almost feels like you bring them to the counter. You pour a new bottle of wine into the decanter and they're standing there wondering if it's aerated enough that they can drink some. Mm. And you'd be like, no, pour yourself a glass. Mm-hmm. So evangelists do that service and it's yeah. a really important service and some people are good evangelists and bad preachers mm. and sometimes people will think they want to be a pastor and they're really an evangelist sure and you've got to see that yeah in the church and say you're really good at like these one or two time hits right you probably need to travel around and like get together a really good shtick and like do right. that instead of pastor in one place because like these people sometimes they'll write three or four really great talks sure but they, but they can't write 50 yes S- pastors are like sermomatics we can write 45 good sermons a year none of them are fantastic but they're all new mm-hmm. a good evangelist can write six incredible engaging talks for non-christians every year that right. are persuasive but they can't do 12 they can't do 12 or 15 mm-hmm. you know yeah that's the, i mean that's a bit of a generalization but yeah, you, but you know it, what i'm getting at yeah so um 
one question that you posed in the sermon is, do do we need to look for people who can do all five of these things? Right. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? And that's probably where we need to end. Okay. Yeah. So there are some churches that will talk about their pastors walking in the five-fold ministry. Or they'll actually say this minister is a, walks in the four-fold ministry, right? He has four, but not all five. Yeah. Or two or three or whatever. And um, sometimes people will say, you should stop going to that church and come to my church because our pastor walks in the whole five-fold ministry. And of course, what that means is that the only good churches are charismatic churches because prophecy is one of the five, mm-hmm. right? And so if your pastor's not a prophet, then he doesn't have the five. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that the reason I think that that's foolishness is because I don't think that that's what Paul meant at all, right? The first question is, what does the passage in the Bible right. mean? And as I've studied this over the last 20-something years, about 24 years, because this was big when I was in college, because I was in okay. a charismatic ministry. Yeah. I become more and more convinced that these were offices that people held. They were generally understood to be one of these things. And because you, there's no one in the Bible referred to as more than one of these things. Hmm. Right. These two people are apostles. This person is an evangelist. Sure. Right. Philip had four daughters who were hmm. prophetesses. Right. You never hear two. Right. Much less five. You never hear anybody who is a five-fold minister, right? Now, it is true that the Apostle Paul gives examples of moving in each of these. Sure. Right? So it's not like it's impossible. But and again, we sp- talked about this is we right. should pursue. You should pursue in them. all the greater right. gifts. You right. should want to be as gifted as God will give you the grace to be yes. gifted. And there are some pastors that have all five capacities. Right. In fact, it's not just five; they have like thirty-five. Yeah. <laughs> they have the gift of helps and administration yeah. and all these other things to yes. boot. You know. Yes. People are gifted in different measures. Yeah. That word measure is used in Ephesians at least yes. three times. Mm-hmm. And so that's true. But that's not the point Paul's making. Mm-hmm. What Paul is saying is Jesus gave the apostles. See, part of the confusion here is in the 1982 NIV translation. It says God gave to some to be apostles, to right. some to be evangelists, to some to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so the assumption is, the point of the verse is, is that some people get this gift right. and some people get this right. gift. That's not what the Greek says. And the new NIV does it better. What it says is Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. The isn't mentioned the next time. Right. And so the definite article is telling us that these are particular things. Mm-hmm. And the point of the passage is, Jesus the Christ has given all five of them. Right. Right. And they seem to be definite and separate. That doesn't mean you can't be both an apostle and a prophet or all five. Sure. It just means that's not the point that Paul's arguing. Mm -hmm. And the way I think we should look at as a church is, is that these were itinerant people going to all the different churches and they were, they were mainly exhibiting this gift Mm -hmm. to bring unity and maturity to the church. Right. Right. And so we should be open to people being each of these things. Right. And a healthy church is not a church that has a pastor that does all five. A healthy church is a church that is seeking for all people to grow and work in the ministries of grace God has given them. Mm -hmm. And that we either have all these in our church or we build relationships and unity with other churches. So we know apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that really help us that we can invite to come Mm -hmm. and strengthen and better us. 
Absolutely. Right? So I think this is more of a calling of that a church should be looking to bring in outside people sometimes. Right. And allow their people who are highly gifted to go other places and support those churches. Yeah. I think if we wanted to live out that passage, we wouldn't look for one person who had all five ministries and feel amazing. We would say our best ministers should probably only be here a third of the time. Yeah. And Mike, in our case, it would be like Mike and Nick and Lloyd particularly, but this would be true for you too, is most Sundays you won't even be here. Sure. Because you have a ministry, in your case, I don't know what it would be, a ministry of evangelism or teaching, right? Where like you would, because we've had churches say, hey, can you help us get a worship ministry together so we can worship God better? Because we're terrible at it. Nobody wants to come to our church. Mm -hmm. So that's a ministry of evangelism. You're making it a more inviting place for people to come. And a pastoral ministry where you're guiding people towards a certain end of worship, right? If we wanted to walk in this, we would say that. Yeah. We would say, we will be here building each other up, whether Nick or Lloyd or Mike or Nicole are here any given Sunday. Maybe one of them will be here every given Sunday, right. but never all four of them, mm-hmm. right? And Manohar would be another example of that. Yes. And so I think our church should try to move in that kind of direction yeah. to obey this passage. And I'm hoping that more and more churches are going to let go of this like fivefold ministry guy thing, not because they don't exist. We should celebrate them and utilize right, them when right. they exist, but we shouldn't pretend like churches should have that mm-hmm. that's not what the scriptures say yeah that's not the mark of the healthy church right and if listen if your church has a five-fold minister he should almost never be at your church mm-hmm. by definition because he should be itinerantly using all five of those <laughs> yeah. gifts so he should never be around right which means most churches wouldn't want a five-fold minister right. yep right yep so in conclusion yes um, to know more about some of these spiritual gifts in a broader sense, they are explained in more detail in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, chapters 12 through 14. You'll notice that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is in the middle, which is about love. Mm-hmm. And it's important to recognize that none of these gifts mean anything. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 explicitly says this. None of these gifts in your use of them means anything without love. And the example that he gives in 1 Corinthians 13 is prophecy right. and tongues. Mm-hmm. Right? If I can see visions and I can speak in the tongues of angels. The Bible never actually says that when we speak in tongues, we speak in the tongues of angels. That is a hypothetical statement that even if I could speak in tongues in the tongues of angels. Right. But I wasn't loving when I did it. It would be nothing. It would be like banging a gong. Right. And then the second big thing is they should be under authority. All of the gifts of the spirit and their use is under the authority of the elders, even apostles. Mm. Right. When the apostles didn't start the church. And right. appoint the elders. Right. And then thirdly, they should always be done with humility. Mm-hmm. Right? So if they're done in love, under authority, and with humility, they tend to be a pretty healthy thing. If they are done in pride, without authority, right. and they are done without love, then the moving of these gifts or offices tends to be extraordinarily destructive, hierarchy-creating, and tyrannical right. in churches. And they tend to be ways people coalesce power so that they can sin and hurt others. Some of the worst church scandals in American history have come from charismatic churches. And it's not because charismatics are worse or that their theology is wrong, but because the abuse of these sorts of yeah. offices coalesces power and demands loyalty in a very unhealthy way. Mm. And we need to be aware of that. And that's mm. why we have elders. Right. Because the elders are supposed to say no. Right. And they're happens. the ones who are not itinerant. Who are right. staying right. with the body. Yeah. Right. And the Lord has given the authority, the full authority, not to the apostle or the prophet, the evangelist, the teacher, right. but, but the they've elder. given it to the local church's elders. Right. 
and even outside the Bible in the book called the Apostolic Constitutions, which is very early. And it outlines all five of these ministries and how churches should relate to them. Hmm. It always restores. It always restores final authority to the local church's elders. Right. It's the elder's job to determine what is in the best interest of their flock ultimately. Mm-hmm. If any of what we've talked about in this episode or even other episodes um, has piqued a question that you have, there's an email address that you can send any questions to that's podcast at highpointchurch.org. So if you want to hear Nick answer a specific question, send it there. And we're going to try and answer some more of those types of questions in later episodes. Let's spend one minute on the one question we had for this episode. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is a real issue related to this. I don't want to talk about this in another podcast. So uh, yeah, the question is related to prophecy and cessation. Right. Cessation meaning to cease or to stop. And um, some people believe that these gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy in particular or healing for in some cases have stopped Mm -hmm. and i talked about this a little bit in the sermon yeah can let me give you the specific there are three specific questions that this writer had one um can you give a scripture-based explanation of one why cessation is incorrect Two, what is the safety mechanism, especially when a prophecy is intended for an individual, not a group, where the individual may not be wise enough to distinguish a fraud? And three, how to safely nurture a person with the gift of prophecy so that they can speak wisely rather than doing harm? So the first, a biblical explanation of why cessation is incorrect. Yeah, so in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, this is the passage that was used for years by cessationists to argue for the ceasing of these gifts, and it actually teaches the opposite. Hmm. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Right. And so without going into significant exegetical detail about why this is, um, the two possibilities for when the tongues and prophecy will cease are A, the return of Christ, or B, the canonization of the New Testament. Now, in order for the cessationist argument to be true, this this would have to be referring to something like the canonization of the New Testament. There's no way it means that. Hmm. So what I would encourage you, just in your quiet time, read this section of 1 Corinthians 13 and just meditate on what, what what these metaphors mean to say, we see a poor reflection is in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. I know in part, but then I'll know even as I am fully known now, right. meaning now. Like it's just, that means Christ's return, mm-hmm. right? When all, and all these gifts are imperfect, the perfection that is going to come is the eternal kingdom of heaven. It is right. the final reign of Christ. That is when there will be perfection. The right. Bible is great, but that's not what this means. And then secondly, there's no way in God's world that the Corinthians could have ever interpreted it that way. Like first Corinthians can't mean 
what a first century church member in Corinth couldn't have possibly understood it to me. Paul was writing something intelligible to them. They knew about the return of Christ. They didn't know anything about the canonization of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's just a bad argument. And so, and the argument was really more motivated by the charismatic abuses. Mm -hmm. But Paul didn't want to deal with abuses by forbidding something that was a gift that God had given. He wanted us to regulate and utilize it with humility and godliness. And the reason he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, with love, that was his demand. And he wrote late in, I I don't know if it was in Corinthians, but where he talked about when you prophesy. Mm -hmm. So that also... Right, it's limited to. in time, and it's under the judgment of the elders, which gets to the second question. What do you do when somebody gives you a prophecy? Before we get there, this particular person who wrote it, they mentioned Hebrews 1, which says, in the past he spoke to us through the law and prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. Yeah, that's, that, that is a terrible argument. Be, I'm not saying this person is making that argument, but the law and the prophets is a technical term for the Old Testament. So the first five books is the law. The next portion is the prophets. And when it holds the definite article like that, it's referring to the prophets that is in the Old Testament. So that has nothing to do with a New Testament gift of prophecy at all. Okay, so now the second one, what's the safety mechanism, especially if this is a prophecy given to an individual? Yeah, you still bring in an elder or someone else Mm -hmm. because prophecies do not have the right to be untested. If a prophet ever tells you that their prophecy should not be submitted to testing, they are a false prophet. Right. Okay. Or they could be a well-meaning, utterly and completely ignorant prophet that doesn't know how to use their gift with love, which you shouldn't, who you should not listen to. Because if their gift isn't operating in love, it's a clanging gong or a symbol. It's, mm-hmm. it's worthless. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it's very likely they're hearing God wrong and you shouldn't listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if they're open to it, then bring in somebody else. Bring in your right. mentor, right. bring in somebody you think is wise, or bring mm-hmm. in an elder. Mm-hmm. And then discern together, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, even when it's given to you individually, you still absolutely are under the authority of your elders. Yeah. And you still can bring in your elders. That's why they're there. Just like as in church discipline, yeah. if your husband is beating you up at your house, right, that's still an issue of church discipline yeah. for which your elders would be happy to support you, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so the last bit of the question how would you safely nurture a person with the gift of prophecy so that they can speak wisely rather than doing harm yeah i would say be humble and experimental yeah as you get going yeah just share people intuitions say what you said before i'm not sure if this is going to mean anything to you um but then after you share it with them say hey could i follow up with you later and see if anything came of this mm-hmm. and then you actually like i think if you're starting walking a gift of prophecy having a journal Mm-hmm. And writing down what you think God is telling you, who you told it to, the date you told it to them, and then ask them if you can follow up with them later, follow up with them like two months or some increment later and say, hey, did anything come of that? And try to figure out if you're hearing the right stuff. Don't just start saying, thus saith the Lord. Right. Yeah. So some humility experiment, and then try to find somebody who credibly has or deeply understands the gift of prophecy Yeah. and ask for them to help you learn. Yeah. All right. That was that was not, not one minute, long. but yeah. it was better than I expected. Well, I thought there was the only the one question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. 
If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.